1: Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.
0: Hello podcast listeners, I'm Connor, and welcome to this week's episode of Intelligence Squared. Today we're joined by the BBC's North America editor, John Sopel. And in conversation with Manveen Rana, they look back at one of the most consequential elections in American history. Drawing from the themes of John's new book, Unprecedented, Politics, Pandemics and the Race that Trumped All Others, they discuss what the campaign was like in the midst of the pandemic and how it became bigger than one election, but the battle for the very soul of America itself. It's a really fascinating conversation and if you do enjoy it, you can find a link for John's book in the podcast description. But now, let's go to the episode.
2: Hello and welcome to this Intelligence Squared event with John Sopel, who's been the BBC's North America editor since 2014, guiding audiences through a remarkable period in the country's history. It's a remit that he's extended to launch and host the wildly popular podcast AmeriCast, which makes sense of American politics for audiences all over the world and introduces Americans to the joy of revels. He was previously the BBC's Paris correspondent and chief political correspondent. He's hosted The Politics Show and Newsnight and is a regular on Hard Talk, as well as a number of Radio 4 programmes. He's written three books about his time reporting on Donald Trump's presidency, A Year at the Circus, Inside Trump's White House, If Only They Didn't Speak English, Notes from Trump's America, and now Unprecedented, Politics, Pandemics and the Race that Trumped All Others. He might have detected a theme there. John, welcome.
3: Manveen, thank you.
2: This is now your third book on Donald Trump. Is he actually a dream
3: for a journalist? Honestly, Mamveen, I could barely write my name when I went to America, and I've now written three books, uh, which, I, <laughs> which I had no intention of doing. And it all started like, you know, a, a literary agent... Heard me telling some story about something to do with Trump on Radio 2, I think. And he contacted me and said, you seem to be able to tell a story. Why don't you see if you can write a book? And I thought, oh, OK. And I kind of came up with an idea about how different the US is from the UK and so many and trying to anatomize that. And everything about Trump is larger than life. It is technicolour. It is vibrant. It is noisy. It is irascible. And it is just the most fantastic canvas on which to paint if you are a journalist now I'm not making any comments whether it's great or not great for humanity or any of those things which maybe we'll go on to discuss but honestly I feel like I've had four years of a daily fix of uh, crack cocaine and I'm now moving over to half a shandy and there is a degree of cold turkey in the transition (laughs) from the kind of quiet stillness of the Biden presidency to what we've had.
2: You join John now in in rehab, effectively. (laughs) Um,
3: I've got, there there are soft furnishings (laughs) everywhere.
2: (laughs) Just as well. Uh, You're also in quarantine, so that's much needed. This book covers the year of the election, which was surprisingly dramatic and unpredictable in the end. When did you think that Donald Trump might lose it? Because, you know, at the start of 2020, most people thought he'd be sailing back into the White House.
3: It's a great question. I think that... It was in April, I think, not at the start of the pandemic, where Donald Trump seemed to be joined at the hip with Dr. Anthony Fauci and Deborah Burks, the kind of people who were advising him in the White House. But then you could see that this time a year ago, he started talking about, wouldn't it be great if the churches were full at Easter and the congregations, everyone was packed in next to each other. And then you had a few protests against lockdown, against wearing masks, against and Donald Trump knew that was his base. And he thought, he made the calculation, I can never, ever separate myself from my base. And I think that was a huge miscalculation. So I don't think it was coronavirus that did for Donald Trump in November. It was his handling of it. And just to give one brief example, I was in the briefing room and the, the briefing room became this pared down place where only a dozen journalists were in the room. It's got, it, you know, on busy days, you could have 80, 90 people in the briefing room. But for social distancing reason, the White House Correspondents Association, which runs that bit of space in the White House, said, right, we're going to take this very seriously. There's going to be social distancing, maximum of 12 people. And, I, and so you were, it was like you were having a personal, almost like it, was a, it was like a seminar where you are there with your tutor. We had Donald Trump, 12 of us in the room, and I was there when he talked about injecting bleach into the body. And you just thought, has he really just said that? I think he has just said that. And I had this vision that, well, later that night, I got the press release from the the guy who is the, the director of communications for the biggest bleach company in the US, Clorox. And I would imagine his normal job is to write... Well, we have got a new peach scented bleach that will be available in supermarkets from next week. That's as exciting as his job gets. And that night he wrote, whatever you do, do not listen to a word the president of the United States has said. Do not ingest bleach in any way because that could be absolutely deadly. And I thought, my God, what that company must have thought that night (laughs) when the president had talked about injecting bleach. And that is what I mean about just you cannot quite believe Uh, what is happening and how noisy, how raucous, how unpredictable, how jaw-dropping so much of what you're covering is.
2: But I mean, that particular incident just raises a really important question. How did you go about working out the tone you should take when you're covering Donald Trump? Because, you know, he is standing there telling the world bleach might cure COVID, but at the same time, he is the President of the United States, you know, leader of the free world and commands a bit of respect for that. How do you, how do you find the tone it's a fine line yeah it's a
3: really good question i mean you know there's a part of it the the glib answer is that my eyebrow has learned to do wtf at times when donald trump has said something because you just think you know almost lost for words on a more serious level i think that you have to do things seriously and you have to you can't treat the president of the united states as a joke i i often got feedback saying why are you covering this Why do you cover his tweets? Well, he is the president of the United States and what he says matters. And if we start saying, well, what he says doesn't matter, then we are trivialising the most powerful person in the world. I don't take everything literally, which is something else I had to do, because you have to know that with Donald Trump, there is a degree of braggadocious. It's made up some of the stuff and some of the stuff is untrue. But when things are untrue, I think it's really important that we say to the audience that isn't true. And if I could just take a couple of minutes at the start of the presidency, he talked about that the inauguration crowd was bigger than Barack Obama's. Not true. On day one of his presidency, I'm having editorial discussions with the bosses in London, which were roughly do we say on the one hand, Donald Trump claims this. On the other hand, Barack, you know, this is what the photos show. Only time will tell. John Sopel, BBC News, Washington. Or do we say it's not true? And we decided we went with the latter. And the, the BBC bosses, bless them, were bold and said, no, no, if, if something is demonstrably untrue, there, there, there are no alternative facts on this. There are some things that where facts are very stubborn. Then there was an incident when Theresa May hosted Donald Trump at Chequers and there was a news conference and Trump started talking about how he and they were talking about Brexit and how he had predicted that Brexit would happen when he held a news conference at his golf course in Turnberry and it was the day before Brexit and all these journalists were there listening to him on the ninth tee and he said Brexit would happen and how the journalists were amazed the next day when it happened well I was there it he didn't predict anything he arrived in Scotland the day after Brexit So I pointed out untrue and a White House person official took me on on Twitter saying he was there. And I said he was not. Here is the flight manifest of his plane arriving in Prestwick on the 24th of June, the day after Brexit. Here is his tweet saying I have just arrived in Scotland and the country's going mad. And I thought it was interesting. I mean, not these are small lies, but I thought it was interesting. For the first time, I'd seen the White House backing it up officially on Twitter. And then you get to. November 2020, and the rather serious untruth is being told, that the election was stolen, threatening American democracy. And what was astonishing was the extent to which a large part of the Republican political establishment did not want to say to the president, you're wrong. Because if, and this isn't me saying it, I mean, you know, a lot of people seem to take the view, there's no smoke without fire. There were 62 court cases, America is a country of laws and laws are adjudicated by judges and the judges adjudicated, many of them appointed by Donald Trump, that the election was fair. There was nothing to see. The attorney general, the man in charge of election security, the election officers in each of the states certified the results. There has been no evidence provided that there was fraud. And yet this lie perpetuated. And even still, the the minority whip in the the House of Representatives, a guy called Steve Scalise, uh, at the weekend, was refusing to say that Joe Biden won the election fairly.
2: I mean, what was that like for you as a, a journalist covering the Trump years when journalism and the truth seemed to become the enemy and the White House clearly
3: didn't appreciate either?
2: What was that like?
3: Um, look, it's you know, I was at Trump rallies where I was being called a liar. And these are the, look at those people over there. Look at them on that rostrum. That's the journalists. They are the most dishonest people on earth. They are fake news, etc., I tried to take it lightly because I don't think my job is not to get into a fight with Donald Trump. And I think a lot of American journalists decided they wanted to get into a fight, which I think was a mistake. I think we're there to report, we're there to hold power to account. We are there to say that was a great achievement if something great happens, or that is a mighty gamble that might yield big results. And that seemed to me the case when suddenly, you know, it seemed like North Korea and the United States were on the edge of war, and suddenly Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump are wandering around a garden in Singapore together. And you think, well, that's progress. And, and, and you report that, and you report it fairly. And equally, when something batshit crazy, to use the technical term, happens, I think it's our job to say, oh my God, that is batshit crazy.
2: But did it feel like journalism itself was under fire? Did you feel under threat?
3: Uh, There were odd moments where it felt under threat. But every time, I mean, the the, the interesting thing about the US is the First Amendment, which is very powerful and gives journalism and journalists an awful lot of leeway. And so I think that the times when I thought this is getting, you know, I think that the the bits of the bits that were worrying were when so when so many believe that we are fake news. That's the the worrying thing, and it and it reaches its its apogee on January the sixth with the riot and the storming of Congress. And I was at the Ellipse where Donald Trump made that speech, that incendiary speech in the morning about we've got to fight, we've got to fight like hell, otherwise we won't have a country left. And the mood of the crowd had changed. Donald Trump supporting audiences have normally been a lot of fun. They adore him, but they know that he fiddles his taxes and that he cheats on his wife and he does all sorts of bad things, but he's got their back. He's their guy and they love him for it. There was no humour on January the 6th. There was a very edgy atmosphere that it just, it felt like, frankly, from years ago, being at a football match where you know it's going to end up in a fight. And it felt like that. It felt like these people were there for a fight because they were so convinced that the election had been stolen. And every time I tried to reason and say, But look, look at all the judges that Donald Trump appointed. Well, they're the deep state. But look at you know, look at this. Well, you're just fake news. Well, any evidence you gave would just be dismissed out of hand. And that is a real challenge, I think, to not just the United States of America, but to all democratic societies where people are living in echo chambers and they're only hearing what they hear, want to hear coming back to them. And I think that is a real challenge for us.
2: I mean, in in the book, it's it's an election diary, and you write about moments of, you know, there were anxieties in the last month or two that Donald Trump wouldn't go easily, that, you know, you might have to call in the army. Nobody quite knew how it would play out. Were you surprised on January the 6th when it it ended with rioters marching on the Capitol and, and another impeachment trial, which, again, went nowhere?
3: Uh, Let me come to that in a second. There's a point I want to make about the journalism, uh, which relates to your previous question, which I should have made. Look, I've loved my job and I have loved my career. I've loved working for the BBC. I've loved reporting. I honestly have never thought it... um, No, I've always thought it important. I have never thought it more important. I think the ability to give news that will give a variety of opinions... It's not my job to tell people whether to vote for Trump or Biden, or be pro-Brexit or anti-Brexit or Conservative or Labour, I want people to be able to make judgments on facts and good reporting. And that is, I think, Manveen, what our job is. So I kind of feel that the past two, three, four years have made me feel that journalism and my chosen career has never been more important and equally more challenging than it is right now, because we are in an era of populism where some of the values of liberal democracy seem to be being challenged. And broadly speaking, I kind of like, you know, that we have got the rule of law, the right of association, the freedom of the press, etc, etc. So I think those things are very important. Going back to January the 6th, it was simultaneously the most shocking thing that I have ever reported on. And I went on the 10 o'clock news to say that tonight I think that American democracy is on the edge. When I took up my posting of North uh, North American editor, would I ever have imagined that I would have used such a hyperbolic phrase? And I stand by that phrase because that night it did seem on the precipice and we've come back a few inches But I still think that there is the potential for unrest in America. And yet it was also simultaneously the most predictable thing. And you say I write the book in a diary format. I do. And I haven't gone back and tried to revisit any of my judgments to make myself look clever. I mean, I talk about I talk about Joe Biden at the start in January and February of 2020 and say, oh, my God, this guy looks half asleep. He looks like an old prize fighter going into the ring for one last fight. But I also so I got that, you know, very wrong. And actually, I look back and think only Joe Biden could have beaten Donald Trump out of all the galaxy of uh, candidates that the Democrats put up in the early stages. But I also said months out from the election that Donald Trump only sees two outcomes. One is that he wins and the other is that it is stolen from him. And his havering over the question of a peaceful transfer of power. It was obvious in September, October and in the weeks leading up to the election itself on November the 3rd. And so, no, not at all surprising. This was the consequence of telling his supporters, 88 million followers or whatever it was on Twitter, huge following on Facebook, all the kind of right-wing sites that, you know, like Parler, which people went to. It was the obvious consequence of what people were being fed and not hearing any other viewpoint.
2: The impeachment trial that followed came to nothing. Do you think there's still going to be some form of of legal recourse something for, for Donald Trump to face
3: yes i think it's very possible i think that the trouble with impeachment is it, it it's dressed up in quasi judicial terms of there is a jury and there is a judge presiding and there is evidence called and there are witnesses etc that you would talk in any other courtroom and 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 the senators take an oath to hear the evidence impartially They're politicians. They're thinking about their re-election. It is the most bipartisan impeachment. You know, look, if you're Donald Trump, you spin it as not guilty again. It's all a hoax. It's ridiculous. And if you are the Democrats, you say this is the most bipartisan vote to convict a president that there has been. There was a clear majority. It just wasn't the supermajority that is needed to remove someone from office or to ban someone from standing for office again. But to your specific point, look, the, the Attorney General in New York, Cy Vance, is at the moment, very obviously building a case. Donald Trump has lost in the Supreme Court yesterday to stop his taxes being handed over. There are various aspects of what the Trump Empire did in terms of the way it insured its buildings and whether it artificially inflated values as a means of gaining money, that is being investigated. There is his call with the Secretary of State of Georgia just before the January riots when he says to Brad Raffensberger, Can you find me another 11,780 votes? which he says in terms, and there is a law, a crime of election interference. Which comes with a, a minimum year-long sentence. That is the so. There's an attorney general in one of the in Atlanta in Georgia, Fulton County, who's investigating that. So, and there are some civil cases, and there are. So, I don't think Donald Trump's legal difficulties are anything like over.
2: Now, a lot of Trump's policies and certainly rhetoric and and the style seem to come from. Steve Bannon, you know, one of his closest advisors to begin with, a disruptor, a culture warrior who received a pardon from Donald Trump as one of his last acts in office. You received a lot of criticism for interviewing him. Yeah. Do you have any regrets about that? Uh,
3: there are at the margins. There are things that I should have done differently. But I going back to what I say, if you if you want to live in an echo chamber, And only I think it's a very dangerous route for the BBC to go down to say we're only going to hear certain opinions. Steve Bannon, love him or loathe him, was the campaign manager that saw Donald Trump elected. So he was the campaign manager for the Trump campaign at the end of 2016 when Trump won the election. He goes into the White House as the chief strategist. So he's on a par. With the chief of staff, they are given equal billing at the top of the White House food chain. He's not nobody. He is quite a significant player. Therefore, to uh, I mean, the bits of the interview that were unbelievably frustrating to me were what he said off the record about Trump was not what he said on the record. Off, what did he well, say? off, off the, the record, record. he's he, you know he thinks that Trump's made a load of mistakes, and he's you know he the, the things that you know Steve Bannon is a smart, well-read, Guardian reading, BBC listening, you know, sophisticated operator who happens to have a very nationalistic agenda. Now, whether it's white nationalism, or, but you know that that that's that's um, you know that's to be debated. But he is super smart. And uh, he was much more disobliging about Donald Trump when we stopped.
2: I mean, in a way, is that part of the problem, though? This is a very savvy operator. You know, he knows how the process works. He knows what you're likely to ask. And he doesn't really feel the pressure of accountability. For him, it's just a win because he gets platform and he gets his message out and he knows that his supporters won't really change their minds what however tough the questioning that you're you know you're putting to him yeah well i mean uh, it it just hardens that rhetoric against mainstream media is is it unwinnable um it's
3: it's that's a really interesting question i and i'm engaging with it rather than just saying oh no 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 no. Uh, but i don't like the use of the word platform because i think that a platform Mm. is just saying here here's a microphone say what you want to say and I think that people would have heard him havering over the question. I mean, it was just after, when I did the interview, it was just after Donald Trump had said to one of the so-called squad, you know, the the the, the, the sort of radi- more radical members of the House of Representatives. I think it was to Ilan Omar. Well, you know, if you you know, why don't you go back to where you came come from? Which you know, I I would not go on air and say Donald Trump is a racist, but what he said was racist. Whether we go that step further and in, say there there is racism in his heart, that that is a judgment for others to make, but it was racist, and I wanted to put and I put that pretty strenuously to Bannon in the interview, and he didn't have very good answers, and I think that that is kind of, in a way, is sort of justifies. I mean, the the, the feedback, the anger I got. And remember, I'm the North America editor and it was a limited time slot. You know, so people then said to me, why didn't you ask him about Cambridge Analytica and their involvement in the British general election? And why didn't you ask them about Victor Orban and Marine Le Pen? And it was it was the old Jewish joke about... Someone who's Jewish, I can tell, I think I can tell this joke about the, you know, the, the, the two women in the kosher restaurant. And one calls the waiter over and said, the food here is disgusting. And the other one says, and such small portions. <laughs> and I think that is slightly what I faced over the Bannon interview. And fair enough. But I think that we do need to interview and challenge people
0: who represent other viewpoints than the ones we're comfortable with.
2: John, moving on to the election that you've so brilliantly chronicled in this. I mean, you started in America in 2014 when Joe Biden was vice president. You've sort of seen a lot of him already. How do you think his presidency will unfold?
3: I think that there's the policy headlines, which you can easily do. You know, let's talk about health. Let's talk about the economy. Let's talk about immigration. Let's talk about rights of asylum seekers, infrastructure. And those will be part of it on which he is judged. I think he has come into the office to try to normalise and take America back to where it was and has been pre-Donald Trump so to an era where there look there is always gain elections are fought in a the most fierce and brutal way in American politics always have been always will be but there was something qualitative and quantitatively different about the Trump years and I think that Joe Biden's trying to lower the temperature he's trying to change the political discourse and the manner in which that discourse is held. And I think that he will be partly judged on the policy issues like does the economy bounce back after the pandemic? Does the vaccine rollout accelerate? And and America, compared to the rest of the world, is doing pretty well, not as well as the UK. It's past the milestone, hideous milestone of 500,000 deaths. But, you know, still per capita, that is fewer than in, in Britain. But I do think that it's about... Whether he can win people over by just the calmness and orderliness and the bet he's taken, which was, okay, I've had I've been on a long car journey and the volume has been turned up to 10 and it's been heavy metal all the way. And now I just want something that's a bit more easy listening that is on in the background where the volume is at six. And I think that that is sort of as well. What will determine the success or failure of the Biden administration? And I think that so it's a, you know, yes, you can quantify the policies, but there is also that qualitative thing about do people feel a little bit more at ease? And there are signs that, that, that he is chipping away at that. And his approval ratings, the last approval ratings I looked at, he was at 63 percent. Donald Trump never got above 50. So already he's in a different place to where Donald Trump was and this huge package, the stimulus package to get the economy through COVID, $1.9 trillion, which I can never quite imagine how much that is, but it seems an awful lot of money. Um, I think that he is he's getting a lot of Republican grassroots support for it. And so I think that there are, he is sort of starting to win a little bit, but, you know, a long way to go.
2: And in terms of winning the country around, do you think it actually helped him that the impeachment didn't go through? Is it hard for him to be seen to be doing anything about Donald Trump?
3: Yes, I think that, it, I think that the last thing he wants is for it to, the Donald Trump psychodrama to go on and on and on. And there was that f- crazy moment, when was it, two Saturdays ago, when it looked as though the Democratic impeachment managers from the House of Representatives were going to call witnesses and then Republicans said right well if you call witnesses we're going to call witnesses and this he suddenly saw this going on for weeks which would have meant that he would not have been able to confirm his cabinet choices which would have meant he wouldn't have been able to find time on the senate floor to get the stimulus package through and it would have just clogged everything up and it would have all been about donald trump and the outcome would not have been any different they weren't going to get a conviction of donald trump and so he just calculated cut your losses i think that He probably felt that the impeachment was the right thing to do, given it wasn't just an odd call to an Ukrainian president over an obscure energy company called Burisma that no one had ever heard of beforehand. This was the storming of the capital, and it did seem to follow from an awful lot of things that the president and his supporters had said. So I think that he felt it was right to do the impeachment, but he wanted it done and dusted as fast as possible.
2: Now I, I keep referring to your brilliant book, but in it, by charting the election, you do also chart the rise of Kamala Harris, which was, you know, it was a big moment for America, particularly with the backdrop of the Black Lives Matter movement when she became the candidate for vice president and then being vice president. Recently, there have been, there have been sort of rumours of her taking calls with foreign leaders and lots of speculation about whether she's actually the real power in the White House. What do you know? what's the gossip
3: the gossip is that she's actually steering a very clever course that she is not doing anything that would undermine but the, the the role of vice president and president and who does what has always been negotiated and it was i think walter mondale under jimmy carter who was very determined that there should be a clear delineation and that there should be he should be involved more or less in everything. And so if you like, Kamala Harris has got her own shadow national security team, her own defence team, her own homeland security team. So she has got on a smaller scale all the same degree of expertise and expert advice that Joe Biden has so that she could have a view on anything and everything. That doesn't make her unique in history. And I kind of I'm a bit sceptical there's a rather sexist trope isn't there that oh she's just the Lady Macbeth and she's just all she's doing is waiting to succeed him and plotting his downfall. I think that her she has tied her future to his. Him making a success of the presidency helps her. The likelihood is that she's is going to stand as good a chance as anybody at this stage. So I think that Kamala Harris is doing what she was there to do and let's face it Joe Biden does look every one of his 78 years. It would be it would be negligent if she were not taking an interest in some of these issues. Now, where you draw that line between being interfering, being too ambitious, another word that always tends to get used for women and not for blokes, because that's what we're meant to be. I think it's one of those things that I just think that is, an, is a no win. And I think that she's handled herself with a good degree of caution. I was very struck when she had the vice presidential debate with Mike Pence that you just felt she would love to have ripped him limb from limb, but knew that if she did, she would have got a terrible press. And it was almost like they were both pulling their punches as if to say, well, I'm going to I'll see you in the green room in 2024 when we're both running for president and then we can really let rip. But let's just pl- let's just go for, a, you know, a nil nil draw in this one and uh, I'll see you in four years time.
2: Now, we are going to move on to audience questions in just a moment. Last one from me, which is just, um, what next for Donald Trump? Is your fourth book, even if it is in the Biden (laughs) years, still going to be about Trump?
3: Oh, God. You know, I thought I'd put it behind me. The publisher said that they wanted to get this, this book out in early January. And so the last diary entry is when it is confirmed that Joe Biden has taken Pennsylvania and he has the necessary electoral college votes on that Saturday after the election. And it seems to me that there is quite a lot that has happened since then. Um, <laughs> the so, book already. Uh, so, you know, the, the idea was that I would write a new chapter for the paperback. And I'm thinking, oh, it's not a new chapter. It's a new, it's a new book. I would love to, sort of part of me would love to put Donald Trump behind me. But there are so m- it is such mm. a rich vein of stories, which I try to tell in the book about just some of the craziness that, you know, I have witnessed and never thought in all my time in political reporting. The words I have used on the 10 o'clock news that have never been used before on the 10 o'clock news because of things that have come out of Trump's mouth and that I am reporting them. So I have said the F word live on the 10 o'clock news, not F dot dot dot, dot. I've said fuck. And, you know, and those sort of things that you just think you were never going to do. So Trump has been a, a rich source of stories. I don't think I apparently this weekend he's going to say at the CPAC conference in Orlando that he is the presumptive candidate for 2024. Well, we've got a lot of questions
2: from the audience about this. Do you you think that's do you think that's likely and do you think he can win it if he is?
3: I think that 2024 is a very long way away. I think that he will be that much older. I think that the damage done over what happened on January the 6th will not be forgotten And if you kind of I I do tend to follow this view of politics that, you know, prime ministers tend to get remembered for one thing. You know, Tony Blair will be the Iraq war, probably maybe unfairly, given everything else that happened on his watch. David Cameron will be the Brexit referendum. Theresa May will be the failing to get the withdrawal agreement approved. You know, so it goes on. You, you, You can get on. You know, John Major, the bastards, exchange rate mechanism debacle. And in presidents, too. Donald Trump, I think, will be remembered for the riot at Congress, the likes of which America had never seen before, and the threat to democracy. So I think it would be an uphill struggle. And you can see that the Republican Party establishment in the Senate, Mitch McConnell, who is the, the very wily leader, would just love to be rid. Who will rid me of this troublesome priest? He would just love to be rid of Donald Trump. But the base is powerful and he still commands the support of millions. But yet millions turned out because they couldn't bear the thought of another Trump term. So I think it would be a very difficult election for Donald Trump to win. And I think it's probably unlikely. I mean, maybe we'll go on to this in questions. I think it, I, I, if, if I was going to, pl- you know, I tend to always lose the bets. I, 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 would, <laughs> I, would, I would I would, put money on him not running in twenty four.
2: And if if it's one of his children instead will it be a Trump candidate versus an old-fashioned Republican Party candidate is is that what's happening within within the grand old party now
3: Yeah, I think I think that is. I think that they will definitely there there's no way that someone a, a Trump whether it's a Trump offspring or a super trumpian you know so there are and there are a couple of those around although ted cruz's chances have taken a bit of a, a dent after his day trip to cancun so his chances but josh hawley the junior senator from missouri he is being more trump than trump in a bid to win over you know the the, the, the trump base but i think that, that there will be big challenges and i think the republican party is in a sense and the nearest comparison, you know, I started as a political correspondent years ago at the very end of Thatcher. I was there for the last six, 12 months of Thatcher. And you sense a Conservative Party that was would continue to tear itself apart for years, deciding whether it was a Thatcherite party or it was a more centre-right party. And I think that the Republican Party has the potential to go the same way.
2: I mean, uh, we've got a lot of questions from the audience about the future of the Republicans. Is there a chance that they might split How do you see it panning out?
3: I think that if they split, that's terminal, because just if you look at the setup of American politics and in the Electoral College, it's winner-takes-all, apart from very few places, you have to get to 270. And if you have a pro-Trump Republican Party and an anti-Trump Republican Party, that will allow Democrats... And those are two parties and you've got a united Democratic Party. I mean, Joe Biden couldn't wish for anything better or Kamala Harris if she's going to be the candidate in 2024. Because I think that the Republican Party tearing itself apart over which direction it goes in really plays into the hands of the Democrats.
2: We've got another question here about the Democrats. Can they win back
3: blue collar voters? I think if anyone can, Biden can bring them back in. And it's quite interesting. One of the things that there was a caricature that Joe Biden would be Barack Obama's third term and that this was just Obama coming back. And a lot of the same people are back. A lot of the technocrats, a lot of the politicians who had big names and big roles during the Obama administration are around again. But one of the things where Biden is differentiating himself is Over economic policy. Whereas at the end of Obama, it was all about these free trade agreements with Europe, with Asia, and that these were all going to be signed. And Donald Trump said, Over my dead body, are we signing these deals? Biden seems to be following a bit more of that economic nationalism. So the point that, and this is kind of interesting for Britain, that when Janet Yellen was having her confirmation hearings to become Treasury Secretary, she said, We're not doing any new trade deals until we've got American jobs back. And she didn't put a timescale on that. But Britain is really hoping to sign a free trade deal in the next couple of months with America.
2: How likely does that
3: look? Well, if it doesn't happen in the next couple of months, there is a window by which this can be passed and doesn't have to go through line-by-line scrutiny in Congress. Once that window closes, Congress will have to go through every line of the agreement. And that could delay it endlessly. So... There is there is some of the economic nationalism of Donald Trump that has transferred over to Joe Biden and some as well of the big spending. You know, Donald Trump was not against big spending. Donald Trump wanted to give big stimulus checks out to all the voters. So there are areas of overlap. And I think that, you know, and you look at I, I mentioned that the stimulus package was popular with a lot of Republican voters. A lot of blue collar Republican voters as well. Now, whether you see, I think that Trump was a unique candidate at a unique time. He spoke to blue collar working class Americans in a very engaging way. Great top lines. We've got to sort out immigration. We've got to we've got to bring back our manufacturing jobs. We've got to build a wall. We've got to keep Muslims out. It was read in tooth and claw and it appealed to a lot of people who felt they'd been left behind by globalization. And Joe Biden, in a way, represents globalization of having been, you know, vice president during the Obama years at the the height of, you know, coming off the back of the financial crash in 2008. And so I think that Joe Biden is very conscious of that and very conscious of what he needs to do to win back those disaffected people who turn to Trump in, and, and also, it has to be said that in 2020, you know, the 2020 election was not a repudiation of Trump. Trump got millions more votes than he did in 2016. And that is the challenge, I think, for the Democratic Party. And it is the challenge for the Republican Party as well.
2: I suppose the other side of, of the coin, we've, we've got another question here asking, how do you explain the rise of populism in the USA? What was it that led to... I said,
3: I mean, there it's look, there are multiple facets to it uh, to give the answer. I think the most I think the most telling part about it was the financial crash in 2008 when America has been through dips. And, you know, there has been economic cycles of recession, growth, recession, growth, all the rest of it. And people then thought, right, we're in a recession. I've lost my job. My job will come back. Not only did they lose their job, they lost their homes because they had bought these, you know, they'd been mortgages were being given away. And I think there was a sudden disaffection with the American dream that things aren't coming back. The steel plant up the road is going to remain shuttered. The textile jobs are not coming back. I'm being replaced by, uh, you know, by robots. My God, what am I doing? And all those jobs have gone to call centers in India and the Philippines or wherever. They are—they're not—they're not returning to me, and I think that. They, so you suddenly get Donald Trump coming along, and I—I I heard a brilliant description of it that Donald Trump, in 2016, just had a series of top lines, but nothing beneath his top lines, and Hillary Clinton had no top lines and a mass of knowledge beneath, and Donald Trump—that's so interesting, yeah. And Donald Trump's message was compelling. Bring back jobs. Rebuild our army. Treat our veterans better. Build a wall. Keep immigrants out. And people loved it. Now, the fact that there was no meat on the bones was neither here nor there. People bought into that. And I think that that disaffection is what led to a rise in populism. And you can look at elements of social media. Where people are magnifying those views, and your the algorithm partly means that if you've already shown a predisposition to that, you're going to feed, see that on your on your on your Facebook feed more information that you've already liked, and that is is a part of it as well. And I think that, you know, politicians were complacent, that everything was fine. I think Obama was complacent. I think Cameron was complacent. I think Blair was complacent in his own way about, you know, the virtues and merits of globalisation. And isn't it fantastic that we're seeing a G20 now and that there are countries, these emerging, the BRIC countries are getting richer and richer. Well, if you're the bloke in Michigan who used to work at the car plant, and all the car manufacturing is in Mexico and you don't have a job, then you don't think that globalization is that great. And you're not you're not that impressed by the fact that there is this burgeoning middle class in Brazil or Russia or India or China. You're thinking, well, I want a I want a better life for my kids. And it's not happening. And so I think that there was there was a very strong element of it.
2: Um, we've got a question here asking Since Biden has come into power, the number of people watching nightly news on CNN and MSNBC has dropped quite significantly. How do you think the mainstream media will adapt to deal with the loss of revenue and ratings that Trump brought them?
3: There'll be a loss of jobs.
2: Really? There will be. Yeah. Donald Trump will cost the media jobs.
3: Yeah, that is the paradox. Yeah. That is the paradox. The fact that this is one of three that I've written in the last, you know, four or five years. It's down to Donald Trump. The, the, you, so newspapers were investing in investigations departments. So, you know, the, the, the man, Veen Rana's, there were jobs for hundreds of people in Washington who were great investigative journalists like you. The, but those jobs, are we going to investigate Joe Biden, whose tax returns we have seen forever and a day, and that we don't, are we that interested in it? Will that, will that, well, that, is that going to excite our readers? Or, or you know, or Kamala Harris, who's, financial returns we've seen so those jobs are not going to be there and i think that and people are saying i just want to take a break from it which is the biden calculation the biden calculation was that people will want to turn down the volume as i you know as i said a moment ago and i think that that and i think that it will so it has been the best of times the worst of times under donald trump
2: for journalists
3: for journalists yeah
2: Somebody else asks along a similar theme, really, should we now ignore Trump and stop giving him airtime or recognise that, as you say, 70 million Americans voted for him at the last election? He's still a big political power. What do we do?
3: I don't think you can ignore him, but I don't think you bark every time he kind of puts out, says something that is just tendentious or over the top. I mean, I think you have to judge it and frame it. But you can't just ignore Donald Trump. I'm just looking for the release of this tweet that he put out yesterday, which just was so astonishing. That I, I Not a tweet, sorry, because he's not on Twitter I was anymore. going to say, yeah, <laughs> how did it feel not, for you it,
2: when he was taken off? Was it sort of a well,
3: again? Well, it was, it was the most weird thing. I, I, I didn't know what to do with myself. It was, <laughs> it was like you were suddenly sleeping alone. I mean, <laughs> as it happens, my, my wife has been back in the UK for the past year because she's you know, an elderly mother to look after. So I've been in, in, living in my apartment in Washington, D.C. by myself for a year. But at six o'clock in the morning, the first thing I do is look. Uh, I lean over, roll over and see if Donald has tweeted me. And if Donald hasn't tweeted me, I think, I oh, well, I'll go, I might go back to sleep for half an hour. And suddenly the, it's silent. There's no one else in the room but me. <laughs> and so I don't think I don't think we can just ignore. Totally, what Donald Trump has said I, I'm trying to find this press release that he put out but it was just so funny he said from the office of the 45th President of the United States President Donald Trump the persecution of President Donald Trump continues and you thought you know really because because they're investing, because they've got your tax returns which you never released um, you know and just so there with the, the Rohingya and the Uyghurs we can now add <laughs> Donald Trump
2: persecuted We've got a, 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 an interesting question from the audience here asking, why did so many people vote for Donald Trump in 2020?
3: Because they like him. They, they love the idea that there is this person who is sticking it to establishment America. They like the idea. And also, in fairness to Donald Trump, he did try to, he did build a, quite a lot of wall. And he did make it more difficult for Muslims to get into the country. And he did reduce dramatically the number of refugees who could apply for asylum in the US. And that was what they that's what he promised. And he did try to bring back manufacturing jobs with some success. Look, g- going back to that, I think the first question you asked me tonight, if the pandemic had not come along and he hadn't handled it in such an erratic way, With politicizing masks and all the rest of it, the way the economy was humming at the beginning of 2020, he was on course to win a huge election victory. And going back to the first impeachment trial, which took place just over a year ago, Donald Trump is smart. He recognized that the greatest threat to him was Joe Biden. And that's why he set Giuliani off on that madcap scheme to subvert what was going on in Ukraine and investigate Hunter Biden and see if it could be tied to Joe Biden as well. Donald Trump saw that Biden was the threat. It cost him his first impeachment and the riot, because he couldn't accept the lost loss of the election, cost him the second impeachment.
2: There's a question here from Tim Barrow who asks, what would it take for enough of Trump's core to finally abandon him and allow the traditional wing of the Republican Party to, to recapture it?
3: You see, I th- I, I, I'm going to answer that question slightly differently, which is that the greatest thing that would diffuse the tension in America would be for Donald Trump to utter two words, I lost, and I don't think there is any chance. But I think that as the months go by and that more senior Republicans who, who kept their counsel in the early days and allowed Donald Trump to claim that the election had been stolen, and you get Mitch McConnell and others coming out and saying these are just groundless conspiracy theories and they ha- they are not tethered to reality, then maybe people will start to realise that some of the things weren't true. But Donald Trump, what I'm clear about, and it, it goes back to the questions we've started with about, you know, does Donald Trump run again in 24? No, I don't think Donald Trump runs again in 24. But I think the candidate in 24 will have strong Trumpian influences. There is not going to have been, oh my God, we must rid ourselves of this man. We must turn our backs on what has gone before. I think that the, they will be venerating Donald Trump as well. And that's a really fine line to walk about the great things. Look at Nikki Haley, who's very interesting, the former UN ambassador. She's clearly going to run You know, we've got to salute. she's come
2: out against him, surprisingly. Yeah,
3: yeah, she's come out against him, but she's also been saying things like, "We've got to accept that he did a lot of great things in his time," and and so she's trying to walk the line between saying, "You went bonkers after on January the sixth, and you and you set up this you know ridiculous attempted insurrection," but what you did before was really good. In your, you know, it was like it was like you, you had your sane days and you had your mad days. In your sane days, you were great, and that—that is an attempt to appeal to the Trump base because you can't. No Republican candidate is going to go in when Donald Trump has got had so many millions of votes and say, "What a loser Donald Trump is! What an idiot!" Thank God we're rid of him because that you're going to alienate millions of people who might come out to vote. And I still think that Donald Trump—they also ran a very good data operation, the Trump campaign. You know, the, the Trump rallies were clever. They were mining data, people's data. They've still got all that data. Donald Trump, through the coal campaign, when he was trying to say that the election was stolen, was raising millions and millions and millions of dollars from people who were going to help him fight that legal case. And if you looked at the small print, it said 65 percent of this money will be going into a, a fighting fund for Donald Trump's future campaigns. Only 35% of the money raised was going to fight the legal cases. So Donald Trump has a war chest. He has data on who these millions of people are. You can be sure that in the coming months, maybe even weeks, Donald Trump will be out hosting rallies, whipping up a, trying to whip up a crowd again
2: but it may seem premature given that we've only just got over one election to be asking this question. Uh, we've we've had it asked several times from the audience too. Hugo Drayton says is there a decent electable dynamic president in waiting in the US? So really I want to know from you who are the runners and riders for for the next election?
3: Well, I mean I think on the the Republican side you have got establishment Republicans. I think Nikki Haley is the most prominent and most intriguing of uh, the candidates. And I would imagine that she would attract a lot of money and elections, remember, in elections, elections in America uh, don't happen without vast sums of money. So I think that she will be uh, someone to watch on the Republican side. I think you're going to have Ted Cruz trying to go again. You're going to have little Marco, Marco Rubio from Florida. He's going to try and go again. I think Josh Hawley from Missouri he will be throwing his hat. Tom Cotton from Arkansas, maybe. Look, most of the most of the Republicans that are in the Senate look at themselves in the mirror in the morning and think, "I could be president," and Democrats too. So I think that there will be a wide field. Well, what about Mike that, Pence? Does he make a reappearance? Yeah, Mike Pence will certainly make a reappearance. I mean, and and it be and what will be fascinating is how Mike Pence handles Trump legacy, because. Trump was the, I mean, Pence was the ultimate betrayer of Donald Trump in Donald Trump's mind. And remember, they were they were chanting, hang Mike Pence, hang Mike Pence. They'd built a gallows at the Capitol. Some of them were carrying, you know, um, the handcuffs to maybe potentially handcuff Nancy Pelosi or Mike Pence if they'd caught them. This was a very volatile situation. So I think Mike Pence will certainly run again. And I think, you know... Everything. I I think that the, the, the I think that there were a lot of Republicans who thought if we just indulge Donald Trump a little bit after the election, tell him for a week or so. Yeah, yeah, we'll we'll explore the legal avenues and then they will talk him down and he will accept that he's lost and he will quietly fade away. And Donald Trump had other plans. And I think that Donald Trump will create absolute hell for Mike Pence if he runs. Whereas Nikki Haley's a bit more cunning and has played Trump a bit more. You know, Donald Pence was put into an impossible position. Are you going to choose what is constitutionally right or are you going to fight for me? And that was the choice he had on January the 6th. And he said, I'm going to do what's constitutionally right. And of course, you'll never be forgiven for that by, my, by Donald Trump.
2: So he would now have to run as a, as a anti-Trump Republican almost.
3: Well, he will try. He will try and thread it like, you know, Nikki Haley's trying to thread it by saying that Donald Trump. We, I stood by Donald Trump. He did a lot of great things. He was a great president. But I think he, but, you know, I think that I had a constitutional duty and I performed it. You know, it might be a, he might resonate, but he's he's not a charismatic, forceful. You know, Donald Trump brought in the crowds. They loved the showbiz. They, and you go to his rallies. They were fantastic. I mean, they were huge entertainment. He, he was funny. He's a good raconteur. You, it may be 11,000 words, which when transcribed amounts to a, the biggest word salad you've ever seen. And that none of the sentences are formed in any proper, meaningful way. But you get what he was saying. And he's funny. He's entertaining. And they loved him. I mean, they really he really does have a hold on a certain section of the American public.
2: And what, what about the Trump children in that case? If he doesn't run himself, will will any of them? And if so, who's the most likely?
3: Well, I would think Don Jr. or Ivanka. Um, Not Eric. Don't think Eric. Eric, not the sharpest knife in the drawer, I wouldn't have said. Um, Ivanka is certainly smart and smooth. And I think that she would be effective in bringing in more liberal elements because she looks like she's a modern woman, you know, and... He wants time off for parents to be able to look after newborn babies and all that sort of stuff. So she was feely touchy. Don Jr. is abrasive and like his dad. But I just don't see either of I mean, Ivanka possibly. Don Jr. is very hard to see for all sorts of reasons. You know, I think that the backstory on Don Jr., I think he might get the scrutiny that his dad never did. His dad, Don Jr. wrote emails his dad never did. I think there are all sorts of reasons to believe. There's a paper trail. There is a paper trail. (laughs) uh, See, people like you, see, you look at you, you're (laughs) salivating at the prospect of a proper paper trail. Yes, love that. (laughs) And I I just think that I, I, uh, of all, I, I find it hard to believe. I think it will be someone who is very Trumpian. And it may be that that person you know hasn't emerged yet and if you go back to you know 2004 who'd ever heard of Barack Obama and yet he was he would go on to become you know the president 4 years later
2: well John we're almost out of time um no! I just, as a last question i just wanted to ask are you going to miss him
3: ah, that's a great question i am going to miss the vibrancy i you see when the 10 o'clock news used to write their running order it was almost in the template that there would be it would be Trump so-called two minutes 30. And now I have to fight to get on. And it's going, it's going to be much more difficult. It's going, the job is going to go back to what it used to be, where the North America editor was there'd be some new environmental protection legislation, or let's go off to Wyoming for three days and film in big sky country. And, you know, and then come back to Washington and cut this lovely feature together, which will run on the news. Anytime I ever got near an airport, my phone would go off saying, come back to Washington. Now Donald Trump has just said this. And I think that it will be more of the latter now and less of the former. The job changes, there'll be time to breathe, there'll be time to read, there'll be time to reflect and think and do all those things that you just really haven't had a chance to do the past four years.
2: Almost a relief. Well, thank you so much for answering all of mine and the audience's questions. It's been such a pleasure. Thanks, John. It's
3: been great. Thanks, Manvi. It's been fabulous.
2: And um, thanks to the audience. Thanks for everyone tuning in and for sending in your questions. They're much appreciated. And thanks to Intelligence Squared for hosting this event.
1: What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice.